uh, as, as Blake said, my name is Mark. I'm a student ministry pastor here. And um, yeah, we get a chance to do this every single uh, August, which is always really exciting for us. Uh, we tend to get like the biggest Sunday we've had in months because everyone's back at work and school and all that kind of stuff. Vacations are done. <clears throat> so we feel like we get the first whack at it, which is fun. Um, so anyway, it'll look a little different and we'll do worship uh, here at the end. Uh, well, there's an awkward, I would say unavoidable moment in the life of every pastor that in recent years, I think kind of more and more non-pastors <clears throat> are actually finding equally difficult to avoid. <clears throat> and for me, it happens on the sidelines of a kid's soccer game or <clears throat> sitting in the barber chair or, or stuck next to a chatty seatmate on an airplane or teeing off on the fourth hole. It's a moment that in the past has honestly kind of been filled with kind of equal parts pride and a little bit of shame, but in recent years has been more shame, unfortunately, than pride. And for a pastor, okay, that moment starts when the other person asks a question that sounds something like this. So, what do you do for a living? And, and the, the narrative in my head is like, oh, come on, man, you had to ask that question. Like, we, we were connecting, we were close, things were going well, we're having a ton of fun. We just high five because you made the putt on the last hole. Like, we're really getting to know each other here. Why'd you got to go and ask a personal question like that? And don't get me wrong, there, there's literally nothing on planet Earth I would rather do than be a pastor. If, if money was not something that had to be made, I would just be here anyway, regardless if anyone was listening. This is just what I like to do with my time. But I've answered this question enough <clears throat> to know that this question, the question intended to create more connection with someone ends up actually bringing whatever connection there was to a screeching halt. There's nothing that takes a conversation from normal and easy and comfortable to, to awkward and clunky and uncomfortable, like, like the answer, well, <clears throat> I'm a pastor, because I've answered the question enough. So the typical response is an awkward apology for swearing on hole number two and ordering a Coke the next time around instead of a beer when the drink cart comes by. And the problem, of course, with telling someone I'm a pastor is, well, you know, all the other pastors out there. People that answer maybe the question the same way that I do, but I don't want to be associated with them. You know, it's all those bad pastors that give, you know, good pastors like myself a bad name. Now, if you're not a pastor, hey, you should just be grateful you can answer the question honestly without ruining a round of golf. But my guess is that after the last few years with just how polarizing everything has been, more and more Christians are having the same kind of experience. And these moments, honestly, they can look and feel like a lot of different, in a lot of different shapes and sizes, but you know you've ran into one of these moments when either you think in your head or feel the need to say out loud, well, I'm a Christian, but not that kind of a Christian. Now, for many of us, hey, we love being a Christian. In fact, we would describe it as the defining reality of our lives, but the problem, of course, with telling someone that you're a Christian is, well, you know all the other Christians out there, all the other people who would use the same label that we don't want to be associated with or likened to, and, and we, as we all know, I mean, it's all those bad Christians out there that give us, you know, good Christians a bad name. You know, all those Christians that, that go to that church or believe that doctrine or support that cause or voted for that candidate or did or didn't wear that mask, but here's what I find so interesting, and at the same time, a little troubling about the whole thing. First, we're always the good ones, aren't we? Like, no matter what happens in our lives 
or in the world or in Christianity at large, no matter what issues polarize us or that different Christians take differing stances and, and opposing stands on, we're always convinced that we are the good ones, the true ones, the right ones. So right, in fact, that it'd be, man, it'd be impossible to ever wake up one day and discover that, in fact, perhaps we were the wrong ones. And what's troubling is that we have words to describe people that think they're always right and could never be wrong. And frankly, they aren't really kind or affirming words, nor were they the words used to describe Jesus, for whom our title Christian originates from. And second, maybe most disturbing of all, is that whatever type of person you're imagining when you say you're not that kind of Christian, well, that person's likely sitting in this room. And guess what? They're currently imagining a person just like you. Don't look now. You might be sitting next to them. See, all of us, all of us think we're the true, the right, the real kind of Christian. We're all convinced that if Jesus were walking around DuPage County in 2022 or walked through the doors of this church on a Sunday morning, that he would look at, all, look at us, he'd look at our lives, he'd look at our families, he'd look at our voting ballots, and he would joyfully and eagerly call us a true Christian, one of his disciples, one of his followers. And right along with it, we all think we know exactly who he'd call out, who he'd correct, who he'd rebuke. But what's scary about that is so did the people who were around when Jesus first walked the earth. In fact, most people and many of the ones who were most convinced they were the right ones ended up discovering that Jesus seemed to choose all the people they imagined to be the wrong ones. So, who's right? Who's wrong? It's confusing, isn't it? It's, it's disorienting, it's troubling. It's a little unsettling for any of us who call ourselves a Christian in this room. Well, my goal this morning is actually not to tell you who is right and who is wrong or tell you specifically if you are right or you are wrong. That's something you will have to sort out with God. And I just want to let Jesus do the talking for us. I want to let Jesus set the rubric, give us the metrics. I want to look at who Jesus the one who was God, who came to earth as a man, who he felt comfortable calling disciples. The men and the women that Jesus felt confident assigning the label of disciple or follower to and why he felt confident doing that. <clears throat> because I wonder if just like the people who were around when Jesus first came to earth, if we would watch Jesus, the people that Jesus feels comfortable calling Christians would make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. And I want to look at the, actually the very first invitation he makes to the very first disciples in hopes that we might find exactly what it is he's calling us to. So this, actually, the second reason I want to look at this passage is because honestly, it's, it's near and dear to my heart. It was the first sermon series that I ever got to preach in my first full-time ministry job when I had just graduated from college. It's also the verse that I got to preach for my senior preaching sermon when I was finishing grad school. And along the way, this verse not only became the mission statement for the ministries that I wanted to create and try have tried to create here, it's also the reason why I decided to sign on to come work at Glen Owen Bible Church in the first place. 
So this is a loaded and personal sermon for me. And it's been the target that I've been striving to lead students towards since the moment I walked through those doors nearly six and a half years ago. And since it's Student Ministry Sunday, what better time to give the larger congregation a window into why we do what we do with 6th to 12th grade students. So let's finally get into it. We'll be in the book of Mark, best book in the Bible if you ask me, chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. Mark chapter 1, verse 16 through 20. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Now, before we get to what it is that Jesus is calling us to, we kind of have to do some work to figure out who it is that Jesus is calling. And the problem for us with this passage is that for some of us, we've been hearing it, man, since Sunday school, since first, second, third grade, it's kind of lost its punch, its impact. But if I think we look closer and and understand the context of Jesus' invitation here, we find this is no ordinary invitation. It was customary in that day for students to seek out a teacher or rabbi to learn under and follow. So if you were a young man in that day and age and had a desire to become a rabbi someday, you would begin listening and following different rabbis until you found one that caught your attention, that you felt like you could trust, that you wanted to learn under, that you could follow. And once you decided that, you'd approach them and ask if you could be one of their disciples, agreeing to go where they went and do what they did and live how they lived, which is what makes Jesus' invitation so unexpected. See, Jesus didn't wait for the disciples to come ask him. Now, he went out and found them himself. He met them where they were, at their place of work, and personally offered an invitation to be his follower. Jesus sought these men out. Jesus is doing the choosing here, which is all well and good until you look at who it is that Jesus sought out and begin wondering to yourself, fishermen. I mean, of all the people the God of the universe could start with to, to build this thing and start this movement, a crew of stinky, smelly fishermen. The movie Moneyball tells the true story of the 2002 Oakland Athletics. <clears throat> Billy Bean, the GM of the Oakland A's, has just watched as his team season is once again cut short after a loss to to the bigger and, frankly, most successful franchise in the history of team sports, the New York Yankees. Not only that, but after their top three, at the end of the season, their top three players all end up leaving the team, leaving the A's in the offseason for bigger contracts that only the bigger teams could afford. And Billy Bean has kind of run out of options, and he's resolved to to settle in for another season of mediocrity, until one day he bumps into this young, ambitious Yale graduate named Peter Brand. Now, Peter has developed a very unorthodox approach to valuing and acquiring talent, and completely out of options, Billy Bean is intrigued by what he has to say. Listen to Peter explain this unorthodox and cutting-edge approach. Here's what he says. It's about getting things down to one number. 
Using stats the way we read them, we'll find value in players that nobody else can see. People are overlooked for a variety of biased reasons and perceived flaws. Age, appearance, personality. But Bill James in mathematics cut straight through that. Then he says, Billy, of the 20,000 notable players for us to consider, I believe there's a championship team of 25 people that we could afford because everyone else in baseball undervalues them like an island of misfit toys. Well, it turns out this approach wasn't as cutting edge as Peter Brand thought because 2,000 years earlier, Jesus was the GM of the kingdom of God. And he begins by assembling a team, a group of people, a group of disciples that will carry out his mission in the world both while he was with them and then for generations to come. And Jesus, like Peter Brand, chose and is still choosing a seemingly ragtag group of people whose potential and worth has been overlooked and undervalued by everyone else around them. See, Jesus is not looking for the world standard of the best and brightest among us because if he was, he would not have started with the cast and crew of Discovery Channel's Deadliest Catch or Wicked Tuna. But that's where Jesus starts. Which is good news for us, isn't it? Do you ever feel inadequate? <clears throat> Do you ever feel incompetent? Do you ever feel unable? Do you ever feel not good enough? <clears throat> not enough Bible knowledge or theological training <clears throat> to engage a world asking difficult questions? I'm not a leader, <clears throat> not good in front of people. I'm not outgoing enough to be effective for God's kingdom. I'm too far from God. I've made too many mistakes. I don't deserve a chance to be, to be used by him. Well, then you're in luck because you are exactly who Jesus has come looking for. Chances are the disciples felt every single one of those things at one point or another. <clears throat> and yet, God chose them anyway. Jesus gives us the first metric to decide if someone is following him or not. Have they found him? Have they encountered him? Because first and foremost, a Christian, a Christ follower, is someone who has encountered Jesus. Now, you can't follow someone that you haven't found, but once you've found them, the only thing stopping you from following is being willing to come near. And so Jesus invites them, come, draw closer to me, be by my side. And these men were willing, and it literally changed everything for them. And it wasn't because of how holy they were, it wasn't because of how often they went to church. It wasn't how right their theology was. It wasn't how interested they were in the things of God. It wasn't their remarkable spirituality or right answers or religious fervor that made them good candidates to be disciples. It was their remarkable trust. And Jesus would take those flawed and failing men and use their remarkable trust to radically change the course of human history and build his church. See, Peter's brand, unorthodox brand of approaching, <clears throat> approach to evaluating talent, it changed the game of baseball. And in the same way, Jesus' pursuit and invitation 
of those who have been overlooked and undervalued, it's a game changer for us. It means you don't have to do anything or be anyone or know anything in order for Jesus to want you. All you need to do is trust that he actually does want you. See, these men, they weren't in search of a rabbi to follow. They didn't even yet know that Jesus was the Messiah. And in fact, even after they they feel like he is the Messiah, they still don't really get what that means. Because by the time Jesus dies, one has betrayed him, one has denied him, and all but one of them runs away in fear, assuming, man, maybe Jesus wasn't who he said he was. I mean, talk about bad theology. Talk about being on the wrong side of history. Talk about misunderstanding who God was. But despite all those misunderstandings, Jesus still called them my disciples. So the first metric Jesus gives for who he calls a disciple is someone who has found him. Someone who is drawn in by his unconditional love, his unconditional choosing of them. Well, after Jesus has invited these fishermen to come to him, he gives his next instruction saying, follow me. In verse 18 and 20, we read, at once they dropped their nets and and followed him. Without delay, Jesus called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Now, it should be no surprise that if we're ever to be considered a Jesus follower, at some point it will require us to follow what we've found. And it's clear from this scene that following Jesus will require us to leave our old way of life behind. We see Simon and Andrew leave behind their fishing business, just dropping their nets and walking with Jesus. James and John, they not only leave the family fishing business behind, heck, they leave their family behind. Their father left in the boat with the hired hands to clean the nets all by themselves. Now, I know for most of us in this room, being a disciple has not meant we've had to leave our careers or families behind. And I'm not saying you're not a real Christian unless you've changed your occupation and moved somewhere new. But even still, a decision to follow is a decision to leave an old way of life behind, to follow the new way of Jesus. And for all of us, that will most certainly cost us something perhaps even more than our jobs or our homes. See, it wasn't just a paycheck. It wasn't just a paycheck these fishermen were leaving behind. It was their source of purpose and value. It was their contribution to society. It's what they were known for. It's what people respected them for. It's what they were good at. It's what they had found affirmation in. Much like in today's world, these men were defined by their work. And they would have been throwing that to the wind in pursuit of Jesus. And so for us, maybe we've decided to leave some of the bigger stuff behind, but, but what about all that stuff just under the surface? What about our desires to be recognized for our accomplishments? What about our desperate need for the approval of others? What about our incessant pursuit to make a name for ourselves or be recognized by people in order to feel valuable? What about our need to be right about everything? What about our desire for freedom to be able to do what we want and when we want? What about our need to control and manipulate our world so we or the people we love never have to experience hardship? 
for these men, following Jesus was not going to be a safe journey, a comfortable journey, an easy journey. No, it was going to be confusing. It was going to be tiring. It was going to be disorienting. It was going to be humbling. In fact, almost for almost all these men, it would one day cost them their very lives. Jesus wasn't inviting them, and he's not inviting us to follow him to safety and control and health and wealth and security. Jesus was actually inviting them to follow a way of life that he would describe as dying to yourself, as carrying your cross. In fact, the way of life that for Jesus would lead to his unfair trial, his cruel mistreatment, and his brutal execution on a cross. So have we... Christ's follower, have we really counted the cost? Are we really ready to leave it all behind in order to go where Jesus is going and do what Jesus is asking? Because what it means to be a Christ follower is someone who has not only found Jesus but, but left their old light way of life behind in order to follow in the new way of Jesus. Well, what is the new way of Jesus? Finally, Jesus is going to give a picture of where following him will lead us and why it will be so treacherous. So let's find out where that is. Jesus continues, come, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people, or I will make you into a fisher of men. And this is the only place in both the Old Testament and the New Testament where this phrase, fisher of men, is actually used. So come on, even the disciples would be like scratching their heads a little bit, like what is that supposed to mean? So I want to hone in on that phrase for the rest of our time together. Now, full disclosure, I know so very little about fishing. Okay, My fear, fishing career includes mostly sunfish, bluegills. You can basically reach your hand in and pull it out. You don't even need bait or hook or anything like that. So that's kind of where I tap out. But my brother-in-law, who, who grew up in West Palm Beach and lived there for a long time, <clears throat> is an absolute excellent fisherman. And back in college, on a spring break, me and some of my buddies piled into a car that was too small for us and drove the 20-some hours to get down there for a week of spring break. And there was one day where he decided he'd take us out on his boat for a day afternoon of snorkeling and spearfishing. And honestly, to this day, it remains one of the very, very best days of my entire life. And I can assure you, it ain't got nothing to do with us catching fish. <laughs> It was beautiful out. The water was calm. There were these spinner sharks jumping out of the water. It was just like the perfect sunny Florida day that we all need when we're in the middle of March. (laughs) Now, we spent a total of five hours on the water, and there were five of us. And at the end of the day, I had only caught one stinking fish, which may be embarrassing, but it was one more than everyone else caught combined, okay? Now, clearly, we did not have a career in spearfishing, but we got to talking with my brother-in-law about those that kind of have made it a career, And what I heard honestly left me on the edge of my seat with sweaty palms and a lump in my throat. I ended up watching literally hours of YouTube videos of spearfishing because it was so captivating for me. The best spearfisherman in the entire world will relentlessly train for years in order to dive to deeper depths and for longer amounts of time without the assistance of scuba gear. And after training, these fishermen are capable of diving 50, 60 a hundred feet under the water without a breathing apparatus for minutes at a time. So they find coral reefs or rock ledges or shipwrecks, you know, all the parts of the water that we try to avoid. They look for these places. They strap a weighted belt 
around their waist, and they sink slowly down into the dark abyss. What are we doing, people? Once they get to the bottom, they simply sit and wait with nothing more than flippers on their feet and a spear gun in their hand for schools of massive fish weighing hundreds of pounds to swim close enough that they can get a clear shot. And if you think this is horrifying enough, it gets worse. These fish are so big that one shot won't always kill it immediately. And so the fish then proceeds to drag them around the bottom of the ocean as they hold on for dear life till the fish tires out or they can get a second shot. It's not one of the most terrifying things you could possibly imagine doing with your free time. Not to mention the fact that as you bring this bloody fish to the surface, you have to look out for sharks that might want to come for a tasty snack and fend them off on your way to the surface. Now, I'm fairly confident this is not the type of fishing Jesus was imagining, perhaps, which he's referring to in this passage. Because chances are, frankly, God's wondering how anyone could have such a little regard for their life and well-being. But I do wonder, perhaps, if this spearfishing story is more similar to life following Jesus than we might first realize. Now, first, I, I can't say for sure, from my very limited fishing experience, I got a hunch as to one of the reasons Jesus decided to call a bunch of, of fishermen to be his disciples is because they couldn't rely on, on curb appeal. They couldn't simply be attractional in their occupation. A fisherman could, could put a bucket right next to the water, right next to the ocean, put a nice big sign they painted, fish fry tonight, pictures of Nemo and Dory smiling and hugging each other, like having a grand old time. Okay, a fisherman who is not willing to actually get in the water with a spear or get on a boat and go to where the fish are will not be in the fishing business for very long and should not be surprised when their bucket or their frying pan is empty at the end of the day. These men's occupations required they were willing to get up and go to those they were trying to catch. And as ridiculous as it would be for a fisherman to sit at home and and wait for fish to walk up out of the water and hop into the frying pan, is it not just as ridiculous for us fishers and men to sit in church every week and expect people who are far from God to, to come through the doors of the church next Sunday? If we aren't willing to go to them, come on, what in the world makes us think they're going to be willing to come to us? Second, I'm thinking of the men and women who spend years in training, <clears throat> willing to go to the deepest, scariest, and most death-defying <clears throat> death places on planet Earth in search of these fish, and they'll, they'll push their bodies to extreme limits, <clears throat> and they'll overcome their biggest fears, and they'll put their lives in the line, all for the sake of spearing some of the biggest and hardest-to-catch fish in the entire ocean. And I wonder, Christ follower, are we willing to do that for the type of fish Jesus is calling us to? Are we willing to follow Jesus to the darkest places of our world, to the places most wouldn't dare explore, to hook our lives onto people who will drag us through the mud, risking our lives while fending off enemies, all for the sake of introducing them to the love of Jesus? Are we willing to risk our own lives, our own reputations, our own safety and comfort and convenience to catch a lost soul? Are we willing to serve people that will rarely ever thank us? Are we willing to love people that don't deserve it? 
See, if we are serious about following the way of Jesus, I can assure you he will lead you to a lot of unlovable, ungrateful, and unaware kinds of people. People a lot like you and a lot like me. The author of this gospel, Mark, cuts right to the chase, and in these, the next six consecutive story he records, we find just the kind of people Jesus is going to lead us to and how uncomfortable this new way of life, way of love, might make us. <clears throat> After calling these fishermen, the first place Jesus stops is in a Capernaum synagogue filled with religious Jews where he actually drives a demon out of someone. And you ain't got to work in church work for very long to realize there are some very religious people that need to have a demon driven out of them. Jesus is going to call you to stubborn religious people. From there, Jesus heads to Simon and Andrew's house where he heals Simon's mother-in-law, which frankly may be the toughest ask of all because apparently being a disciple means we got to love our in-laws. <laughs> I, I kid, they're probably going to watch this. But the crowds of sick and demon-possessed people, when they see this happen, they flood into the house, they flood to the door, and meaning if you want to follow the way of Jesus, hey, you'll be meeting and dealing with a lot of very sick people, not just with physical ailments, but those who have been spiritually and emotionally wounded and abused. After taking a quick breather in the morning and getting some alone time with his father, Jesus heads back out first thing in the morning into Galilee, and immediately he's greeted by a man with leprosy. And Jesus reaches out, touches the man, and heals him. Which means he'll call us to touch the untouchables of our world. People that most would rather ignore, that most would rather overlook, to associate with people that might make us look guilty by association. Next is this story of the paralyzed man. <clears throat> coming down through the roof, Jesus heals the paralyzed man and forgives his sins because Jesus is after those who feel inadequate, who are limited. He asks us to help people who cannot help themselves, even when it's the result of maybe their own poor choices. He'll call us to the undervalued in our society to stand as their advocate and fight on their behalf. Finally, he goes to ask Matthew, the tax collector, to join him as well. And <clears throat> tax collectors were not only just crooked, they were hated because they were traitors. People that turned their back on their own Jewish family and friends. People who sold, up and, sold out and cozied up with this powerful, oppressive empire. Meaning Jesus is calling us to the people that want nothing to do with God and ridicule those who do. See, if, if you want to follow Jesus, you will not be following him to an organization or a church building with a steeple on Sunday mornings or a set of rules. Now, you'll be following him to groups of people. Now, I know that for most of us, God has broken our hearts for perhaps a particular group or two from that list. Perhaps you're so holy, he's even broken your heart for your in-laws. But this, guys, this is our job description as followers of Christ. This is our rubric. This is what will set us apart. And it's not found primarily in a set of beliefs. No, it's found in a way of life. A life defined by finding Jesus, 
following Jesus and sharing Jesus. Or to put it a different way, a disciple is someone who's found a love so irresistible they'll drop anything to get more of it and then spend their lives sharing what they love with the people they love and everyone they know. And this is exactly what we've been trying to help students do for the last six plus years here at Glenelg Bible Church. We exist to lead students to find the love of Jesus so irresistible. They will drop anything and everything to follow him, to follow that love where it leads, and spend their life sharing that love with everyone they know. In fact, it's the reason I took the job here at Glen Ellen Bible Church in the first place, and what we of a church have strived to do for the last six plus years. Full disclosure, okay, I got turned down for this job when I first applied by a hiring firm, which frankly, I took as an answer to prayer for a guy who never wanted to live in DuPage County again. But my wife, who clearly has a more effective prayer life than I do, went to Facebook and personally, from my account, messaged John Vanderveld asking if I could get an interview. Well, John said he'd love to hop on a call, and so I decided that I should hop on the website to check the church out. And wouldn't you know it, on the front page of the website, right across the front banner was Glen Ellen Bible Church exists to help people find and follow Jesus the exact words that I had just preached in my final sermon of seminary a month earlier. Well, they were missing the share part in that, in that particular case, but when I got to the interview, and John and Kelly and I, we got touched talking, and we, we talked for hours about creating a youth group that didn't simply find and follow Jesus for ourselves and then, and then keep it to ourselves. No, we were actually going to be a group that was obsessed with sharing it that was set on finding lost sheep, a group that wasn't going to simply exist for the students that were already there, but we were going to exist for all the students that weren't there yet, a group where both church kids and non-church kids were Christian kids and non-Christian kids, a group where kids like, like Peter and James and John and Mary and Martha and, yes, even Judas could get in the same room, feel safe enough to share their stories, and ask honest and real, genuine questions seeking God, and in the process, find a God who loved us all the same and invited us to follow him. And you know what the best part has been? It's actually happened. And I can assure you, it's been challenging and tiring and messy and disorienting, and most certainly humbling. There have been hard conversations with students, and leaders, and parents, and bosses, but we have come to realize that's exactly where this way of love will lead us. And for the past two summers, in fact, we've had a chance to celebrate all that God is doing in the lives of our students through students deciding to get baptized on our houseboat at the end of the summer, houseboat trip. And you'll get a chance to watch that video in a moment. But, but if students who are from both religious homes and irreligious homes, those who look on the outside like their lives are all buttoned up, and those who on the outside look like their lives are absolutely a mess, and all of us getting the chance to find and follow and share Jesus together. The essence of Christianity 
at the heart of following Jesus is not an invitation necessarily to a certain set of beliefs. It's rather an invitation to a new way of life. A way of life defined, defined by the life and love of Jesus. Therefore, a, a Christian isn't someone who believes the right set of doctrine, but believes in the right Son of God. It's someone who's chosen to love like Jesus loved. And please, again, don't hear me, please don't hear me wrong and miss what I'm trying to say. It's not that beliefs and doctrine are, are unimportant or unnecessary. I went to a lot of school, I read a lot of books, I listen to a lot of podcasts that would bore you to death, honestly. And it's been my study of those things that have continued to amaze me about the person of God, person of Jesus and who God is. It's just that Jesus never said that it would be doctrine that was the one thing people would know us by or make us look different or change the world. The thing that would actually accomplish all of that would be loving like Jesus loved. And so in the final moments he has with his disciples in the upper room, sandwiched between these two radical expressions of love, the master getting on his hands and feet and washing his disciples' feet, and then going to the cross silently the next day. Right in between these two scandalous acts of love, Jesus speaks it so crystal clear for us. By this one thing, people will know you are mine, my disciples, my followers. He says, as I have loved you, you go love one another. That's what will set you apart. That's how they'll know. That's how you'll know. See, we can get our whole theology in order. <laughs> Appreciate it. We, we can get all of our theology in order. We can get our ducks in a row. We can make nice, beautiful buildings. We can do our best to create great worship. But if we don't have love, the Apostle Paul tells us we're like a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. Or to say it another way, unpleasant to be around. So what's your rubric? How do you distinguish yourself from that Christian you're so scared others will assume you to be? What metrics do you use? What is it that you think will let the watching world know that you are a disciple, a follower of Jesus? And I'm not asking you to make unkind judgments about the lies of other Christians because, hey, love doesn't judge like that. Now, I just want you to look at your own life and your own heart this morning. What sets you apart? Is it your beliefs? Is it your doctrine? Is it the kind of church you go to? Is it the kind of sermons you like? Is it the kind of worship you prefer? Is it the kind of political party you align with? The social causes you support? The social causes you stand against? Is it all the ministry that you've done? Is it all the quiet times that you've had? Is it all the prayers you've prayed and small groups you've led? Or... Or is it what Jesus told us it would be demonstrated by? A life of love. A love that is patient and kind. A love that does not envy and compare. A love that does not boast, race to the front of the line. A love that keeps no record of wrongs. A love that turns the other cheek and loves our enemies 
and praise for people that make life difficult for us, a love that always hopes and always perseveres, a love that never, ever fails. Can you imagine if that's what we are known for? Like Jesus told us and hoped that we would be. That we were known for, for how patient we were with people. We all know what gentle means. Can you imagine if Christians were the gentlest people on planet Earth? The kindest people on planet Earth. The most generous people on planet Earth. Can you imagine if when we told someone we were a Christian or I told someone I was a pastor, it actually made that conversation, that flight, that round of golf more authentic, more beautiful, more connecting? What if people were excited to have Christians around saying, I don't, I don't necessarily believe what you believe, but I sure love having this person around. They make life better when I'm with them. I feel more myself. I feel safe when I'm with them. There's something better about the way they live life. Jesus invited his disciples, just like he invites you and just like he invites me, a seemingly ragtag group of people, to find his love, follow his love, and share his love. And he invites them to define their entire existence around it. So this morning, he invites you and I to do the same. And I'm not asking you to decide for another. What I want to ask you, how will you respond? What do you want your life defined by? Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we are blown away by your goodness to us that not only did you send your son to speak these words, but demonstrate it, a God that would stop at nothing, to reach lost sheep, lost fish, lost people. God, we have so many other metrics and measuring sticks and rubrics for how we decide if we're really in with you. And the first group of people, when you showed up, were, were so very confused. God, will we let our lives be defined by your love for us because we only love because you first loved us. God, help us to know what to do with what we've heard this morning. Help us to walk in the way of love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.